when you have the stopping of thinking, which usually means stopping to worry, that's kind of synonymous on some level. Overthinking means over-worrying, not knowing what to do. If you just don't know and you empty your brain and, you, and allow yourself to not know, the most fantastic ideas arise and the most wonderful things out of nowhere. And, and I think it's just leaving room for your brain to process whatever is doing, whatever it is, its chemistry is doing to allow it to do that. Welcome to Dear Seekers. This is Sasha Shell, and that was Myra Kelman. Myra is an author and illustrator based in New York. She has written and illustrated over thirty books, both for adults and children. And her work has appeared in publications like the New York Times Magazine, and on the cover of the New Yorker. One of her most provocative works was Sarah Bertman's Closet. It's a memoir of her late mother Sarah, who immigrated from Belarus to Tel Aviv in 1932. Sarah, one day in her 60s, just self-edited, self-reinvented, and created a new identity. And since then, she had never looked back and only worn white pieces. After her death, her personal garments and belongings were later preserved by Myra, and were eventually exhibited in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Myra is the most senior guest I have on the podcast so far. She is seventy-three, yet she is one of the most playful and dreamlike people I've ever met. She's joining me from New York. She has acquired a skill and mindset that lets her tap into her inner child anytime she wants. She has a very artistic relationship with her son Alex, and they have collaborated on so many projects together. Which, as a mother myself who has a son, I hope、um, I will be able to do with my son in the future. And Myra has developed a very fond connection with nature, while trees, in particular. And dogs. She is very witty and has a strong sense of humor. And my laughs during the whole interview were evidence of that. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you will do too. And also, please leave us a review or comment, or share with your friends if you like this podcast. And if you subscribe to our Substack letter, you will have early access to our podcast conversations. Plus the exclusive letters and essays, and also the visual component of this podcast. All right, I hope you enjoy. How how is New York? New York is sunny, and spring is beginning to greet us. So it's a very nice time. In contrast to what's going on in the world, we we need to walk in the park and look at flowers. Yeah. It, which season is your favorite? I think spring is the most、uh, glorious time in New. I, I love New York every day, every day. But、uh, spring is great. Do you still have? Because、um, from the research I've done, prepare for this interview, I learned that、um, you have a、uh, many rituals that you've acquired and still practice on a daily basis. First is reading obituary in the morning and going for a walk with your friend every day for that practice has been over twenty years. So, are they are they still part of your daily life, or you have acquired new other rituals? No, I stick to a good thing. So it's exactly that. It's I, I have a cup of coffee with my obits and a cookie to soften the sadness of an obit. But、uh, yeah, a walk is a walk is critical. Sometimes twice a day because. Because we need it. When did you start this、uh, ritual? You say it's been over twenty years. Five but... years, almost twenty-five years. Wow. Was it a one day you kind of just woke up in the morning and you're like, "This is the day I'm gonna go for a walk and I'm gonna this is gonna change my life." Well, I started taking my daughter to high school and it was near Central Park, so that became very alluring. And then my good friend happened to be in the same neighborhood, and we said, "Let's do this." And then since then, that has been every day. Yeah, well, mostly every day. So when it rains, we don't go. Right. 
And why this particularly friend? Because I, from the podcast I was listening to, that you talk about she's a doctor, so she has a completely different practice、um, from yours. So why this particularly friend? And you will have a, this friendship with someone. Um, and you see them every day for over twenty five years. I feel like it's quite rare in this day and age as well, because you know there are so many things happening in our lives. We friendships tend to, you know, wouldn't like be part of our daily life in a way. Well, I'm very fortunate. She's interesting, so we don't get bored. And I hope she thinks I'm interesting, so we don't get bored. <laughs> That's a really big deal, and we and I think we don't get on each other's nerves, which is also a big deal. So, it's a great bit of luck.、Mm-hmm. And so, when I first、um, came across your work was when the visual memoir of your late mother and you, the family memoir, almost like、um, Sarah Bartman, the is Clo- closet was published、um, in twenty eighteen, and the cover illustration. Was pretty much taking over the internet by storm, and you know I couldn't pinpoint exactly who that person was. She looked very familiar, yet not. And、um, so I, at first, I was like, "Who is this woman that is, you know, have a very interesting style?" Of course, look into it. I understand that she was your mother, and、um, her closet full of. You know, white crisp shirts, pants, even her underwear, notebooks, <laughs> were exhibited at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And in an interview and a video, you also said that if she knew this would happen, she would be speechless. Is it because out of joy? Is it out of surprise? Or is it something else? Oh well, I think that a person who is very private, who has a very humble, quiet life. And if they're elevated to a public event that there is a show about them,、uh, they would be speechless. I hope with pleasure, amazement,、uh, incredulous, you know, many words that would that would mean why would anybody want to do a show about me? But she was so singular as a person that I think that what it tells us is that a small life is a very important life too, and that、uh, the sense of humor and the sense of beauty. Are the things that are carried through to other people and other generations. So, she became a symbol of some kind of simplicity and and meaning, a kind of meditation on what's important.、Mm. And your mother has played and also continued to play a very important role in your artistic life and obviously your personal life as well. Um, yet during some interviews, you talk about you know there weren't a lot of like deep conversations in the family. There are not a lot, a lot about feelings, thoughts, or decisions.、Um, so I wonder how did your mother influence you, and how how was your relationship was with, with your mother was like? I think that one of the most important lessons you can ha- you can have or give to someone is what you don't say, and to not impose. Your opinions too heavily on somebody, especially a child who has to form their own opinions about life and feel that they're making their own decisions and their own stupid mistakes and their own crazy travels and you know crazy journeys. So, by the way, today is her birthday,、oh, so it's、wow. very lovely that we're speaking on my mother's birthday, and she would、oh, have been a hundred and two. So we celebrate her birthday, and this is a very nice thing to do. But I think that the 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 elemental happy birthday, Sarah. Happy birthday, Sarah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Sasha. I, I think that we learn by allowing a human being to be themselves and not overwhelming them. And I think that's what she did. She was herself. She had a very strong sense of honor, and she couldn't tell a lie. There was no way she could do that. And you knew there was a trust that was so. So certain and so deep, and her love was so certain and so deep that she trusted us, and、uh, and that's a hard thing to do with kids, on, at any age. But I would say that that's instead of having deep conversations about things, she just was an example.、Mm, that's so interesting because, as a parent myself, as a mother myself, I I feel like there's so much education, there's so many books trying to tell you what you need to pass down to your your kids. But what you said highly re- resonated with me. Was a lot of times silence teach the kids more than anything else. Yes, 
and just to be yourself. So, and as I say, we both know that it's a hard thing when you have kids to to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> but it's a, but it's a good it's a good thing to try to practice. You can't always do it. Obviously, we're human, uh, but uh, sometimes it's good just to let them. Let them do what they need to do. And is that how you kind of nurture the relationship between you and your children? Because I know I'm not sure about your your daughter, but I know your son Alex has you know really follow your footstep in terms of art, artistic practice. He's um, curator, artist, writer himself, and also the co-author of your of your book of your mother. So, yeah, I wonder when you were because also you became a mother. I mean, in nowadays, it wouldn't consider it as late. But I can assume back then, in your th- late thirties, I would assume that was considered a little bit late to become a mother. Well, it was early thirties. If you consider thirty-two oh, and thirty-five、really? early, which I would, I would say early thirties. My apologies 30s. to my research. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's okay. They're allowed. To, but, but、uh, so、uh, I think that I was around. We were. A generation of women that wanted to find our identity, to find our work, and not rush into having children. But then, when I had my children, I said, "Ah, this is why I'm alive." Not that it, not that I didn't want to be an artist, but I understood that they were more important than anything, and to me, their well-being and their welfare. So both my children are very independent, with a great sense of humor. My daughter is wonderfully creative in her field. And、uh, an incredible mother to two little girls. So, I I see the I see the the legacy of of Sarah. I hope in me in that nurturing people who will feel that they can do what they whatever they want to do、mm. they can do. Yeah, and also I mean in in an interview you kind of mentioned that、um, your mom's life, especially when. She and her your father divorced a very unhappy marriage after over thirty years, and kind of inspire you to think, you know, like nothing in life has an expiration date. You are free to change at any age. That's a very liberating thought. But sometimes I feel like that's harder to to do, to practice in real life. So, what do you think you require for someone to? To you know, acquire this kind of thing to in order to to not be restrained by whatever we were told by society pressure、yeah. or even by parental pressures. I I really don't know the answer to that. I think everybody obviously has such a different way of looking at the world, and I just would hope that.、Uh, also, I the man that I married, I met when I was very young, and he was somebody also who didn't believe in. He was really rather fearless, and so. The sense of having an idea—it wasn't enough to have an idea. You have to act on that, and it could be a failure, or it could not work out the way you expected. But it—but you must do it. Otherwise, why are you alive? And that was a thing that was very, very strong from him. But I think I also had that in me—some kind of naive ability to say, "Well, why not? Why not do whatever it is that I need to do?" And I wasn't doing anything outrageous. I was just doing my work. But.、Uh, I guess that takes a kind of courage to believe in yourself, which I don't always have, of course. So some some alchemy of good fortune and tenacity and self confidence. I don't know what some humility, all of those things. Yeah, you attribute a lot of、uh, your quote unquote success, whatever that looks like,、um, to luck. Was that something that I? I sometimes it's hard for me to to believe that, or so I do want to believe it.、Yeah. <laughs> But when when someone is attributed a lot to that, made me wonder if it's actually true, or that person is just being humble. I think it's definitely a mixture. I think that sometimes we just don't know how things worked out the way they did. You know, when you look back from my age and say. Why did I know to do that? And how did that mistake become something that made sense? It's really a lot of mystery. So maybe the word luck isn't correct, but it's some kind of unfolding of events that you can't have complete control over. So it's one of those you do the best you can, 
And if things work out in such a way that you, you can say, from, maybe it's your mindset, that you look at what happened from a more positive point of view than from a negative point of view. So I just don't know. Uh, you know, we always say that in the family, you know, you know just a good luck and a little bit of luck. And, and that's the kind of the uh, unknown element that falls into your life. And bad things happen too. But, but um, that, that is something that when we learn to live with. So I don't know what it is. The answer is there's, there's more I don't know every day than I do know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love how you kind of give a new meaning to love to me, at least. Because I think a thought just came to me. The reason I, I think I'm become a little bit cynical towards luck is the culture I grew up in, you know, Chinese culture. Luck plays a mm-hmm. huge role. Like everything is about either is lucky or unlucky. So, yeah. you know, it's like so luck has become so almost you drowning in this kind of like idea of like either you were in the luck ocean or in the unlucky ah, ocean. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and but the my culture is very similar in that there was the evil eye, there was the good, you know, the good omens and the good things and the, the, the bad things. And in my family, one of the reasons I think that we didn't speak so much is because if you said something good or you were boasting, then somebody would give you the evil eye and it would be bad luck. And if it's bad, you don't talk about it because it's bad. So there wasn't a sense of, it, it, it wasn't as literal, perhaps, but it was certainly there that there were fates that would, that would uh, you know, take, take action against you for either this or that or this action or that action. And, of course, I don't believe that's true at all. I just believe that we're, you know, we're 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 living our lives, and there's no supreme being or forces that are that are controlling anything. So we're on our own. We're on, mm-hmm. we're on our own with our best instincts and our love of each other and our love of 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 being alive and trying to be good people. I mean, what you know, what else can you do? Mm-hmm. But you do have this very s- strong bond with trees and dogs. <laughs> So, I mean, it kind of makes sense because they are lovely, of course, but I wonder what is your special connection with them? Well, uh, dogs can't talk. And that's a beautiful relationship. It's a beautiful situation to have a relationship with somebody who never complains, who's never (laughs) mad at you, who loves everything about you without question. But the simplicity of that relationship, and of course I've written, and I've written a lot about it, and I've painted so many dogs, but the more, the, the, the more that we look for the purity of the, really the important relationships, and, I, and especially during COVID, so many people were reevaluating what's important and what's meaningful and what, what in my life is unnecessary or a waste of time. I mean, you can't be so rigorous. Of course, every day is filled with all kinds of stuff, but but to me, to focus on nature, in a way, I don't do anything with nature other than just walk through it. It's not as if I do some special, wonderful thing with trees. I just love them and paint them. And to the solace that you get from the relationship with nature and the relationship with looking at tre- and looking and, and being with a dog. And basically, it makes you be in the moment. It makes you look at the world around you with a sense of, wonder and with gratitude. So those moments are precious and I take them because there are many moments that are that are difficult and terrifying and worrisome. So as many good moments as I can collect, I shall. I photographed a lot of dogs already this morning. So um in my walk. So it's it's great. And you really you forget your troubles. So hurrah hurrah mm. for that. Do you have a favorite uh, breed? Well, it's funny because my very dear friend and my and she was my gallerist, Julie Saul, just uh, passed away a month ago, and we oh, have I'm been sorry. dealing with with her loss. And at the same time, of the global the the, the despondency over the global war, mm. and um, so this, so yesterday I went for a walk, and she loved dachshunds, and she had always had dachshunds, and then I went for a walk, and I sat down, and I had a cup of tea at a cafe, and there 
three people walked by one after the other with a dachshund. And I said, well, this is Julie saying hello to me. So for today, I'll say that the dachshunds are my favorite and um, in honor of Julie. Mm-hmm. I love that. Do you all almost have these kind of like um, you take the serendipity, you learn from them. Do you see them? Do you like, do you see them as a sign usually or you kind of have a humor kind of flirt with them in a bit? Yeah, I think I, I have a humorous way of saying, you know, if, if I think Julie is saying hello to me, I'm saying hello back to her. I, I won't ignore it. But I know that these are the things that we create, which are wonderful. I know that Julie is not sending three dogsons my way, or I think she's not. What do I know? Mm. <laughs> but, 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 you know, all of the connections, you know, you know, there is a phrase which I don't know where it came from, and I wish I did, but it says, um, I find comfort in this false hope. And in a way that it encapsulates a lot of the day that we create the things that are meaningful. We create the good, the good, uh, ah, that's a good omen, or that's a message, or that's a sign. But in fact, I think we're creating it, but why not? So that's okay too. Anyway, mm-hmm. all of the above. Yeah. And you also talk about, um, you know, COVID has actually, because of lack of options for you, kind of like you, you and many of us, right, are all confined in a very, um, confined space so lack of options actually open up a different set of motion for you and what do you mean by that because I think in a way some people might might argue otherwise this could be very you know restrained in a way right like tied up cannot be free especially for an artist but you actually find something opposite I think that I I respond very well to constraints I like order I like to clean my my room. I like to make my bed. I like to wash my dishes. I like to have a sense of a very grounded daily rituals. And in those daily rituals, I find my ideas spring up with a great, with a great sense of surprise. My brain is occupied being very, very, very mundane. And then, oh, look at that. Look at that idea. That's a good idea. And I think that that's what happened with COVID on many levels for people. Time stopped. And the world stopped, and we all were in the same condition. The entire world to be in the same condition is something extraordinary. And I thought, what a gift this is. And I don't mean the suffering, of course, and the loss and the the, the tremendous amount of tragedy that occurred. But for but for me, I was lucky, and I use the word lucky. I was, I was fortunate to to be in a place where I was very protected and. Uh, if you can take advantage of that. So it was a gift of, of quiet and a gift of thinking and a gift of, you know, not thinking and just allowing the simplicity of life to take over. Mm-hmm. We do a lot of running around in New York, but everybody does a lot of running around. And this was stop running around for a minute and see what, see what happens. Mm-hmm. It's funny because I, I, when I was listening to the podcast you did with, um, Oh, I don't remember the host name, but on 70 over 70 and you had to, ah. you were like repeatedly, yes, re, yes uh, you had to repeatedly kind of remind him, stop thinking, you know, thinking is almost kind of, you know, it's uh, might be right. better if you don't think much. Um, it, it's kind of interesting to me because I feel like you would, you, you appear at least to be someone who think a lot, right? And then yet you kind of use that as almost advice to yourself and to others to not get into the trap of overthinking. Is that true? Am I assuming things or that's, that is true in your case? That's absolutely a hundred percent true and accurate. You, you've, you've said it exactly. And I think that, um, you know, we have, a, we have an expression in my family that I may be crazy, but I'm not stupid. And the, <laughs> the sense of it, I love your humor, Myra. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, the humor in the family. And actually, that's a punchline to a long joke, which I won't subject you to. But basically, it's not as if that there isn't that there's an, an empty. I mean, I use the phrase, and maybe you heard me talk about it, empty brain, in that when you have the stopping of thinking, which usually means stopping to worry. That's kind of synonymous on some level. Overthinking means over worrying, not knowing what to do. If you not if you just 
don't know and you empty your brain and, you, and allow yourself to not know, then, as I said earlier, the most fantastic ideas arise and the most wonderful things out of nowhere. And, and I think it's just leaving room for your brain to process whatever is doing, whatever it is, its chemistry is doing uh, to allow it to do that, which is why the walk is amazing and why uh, doing your work and not, and not thinking. And so when somebody tries to get too many answers, I think, uh-oh, no, no, no. Uh, mm. stop thinking and just see what comes up you see what comes up right and that really really makes sense because so many ideas will come nurtured when you know you're less expected in a way that you're in a shower or going for a walk yeah. or cooking or something right so you're not occupy yourself to indulge this idea of like i need to find something just sitting here to let the ideas fall into my lap kind of thing right yeah right um, it's so funny. Very, it's a it's a wonderful thing to do. Yeah, it's definitely. How, I guess that why meditating has become a practice. Many people have no choice but but embracing and practicing is that's when kind of cool our mind, wander mind down in a way. And I found mm-hmm. it interesting mm-hmm. because, um, I I hope this is not like insulting anyway, but. I actually, um, through my research, I actually found a lot of resemblance of you and my mother, my father, who he oh. is, <laughs> he's an conductor, a musician, and obviously the the art um, practice quite different than yours. But I sh- I found so many similarities between you two, whether upbringing or the practices. Except he is very. Very, very much in his own world, because um, I remember you talk so many times about traveling between the dream world and the reality, and I really find your you very effortlessly kind of travel back and forth at your own pace, and then whenever you want. But for my dad, I feel like he's almost in the dream world, very detached himself from the reality, and even though he's kind of welcome anybody to to see his world, yet he is. His world is very hard to to peek into, but I feel like you, in that sense, you guys are not very similar at all. So I wonder how, kind of, how did you kind of catch yourself when you are too much indulging in the dream world, and how do you kind of snap yourself out of it and <laughs> you know, and then come back to reality in a way? Ah, well, I have a deadline. You know, I have a quitting time for my dream world, which is you know five p.m. <laughs> <laughs> So I know, oh, I can... He's also very funny as well, my dad. That's what another resemblance as well. Uh, and, um, but, you know, I actually, as I've, as I've said that my dream, my work in my world, I, I never wanted there to be a distinction between how I live my life and how I did my work. So that really is very interactive. And in the sense that the most important things to me, or, I mean, the most important people to me are my family, but my, um, I guess my sense of empathy to people is, is there enough. And I'm also alone enough. I mean, I really can be very indulgent in my work and just be, I'm most, I'm, you know, I'm by myself most of the day. And so then I'm kind of delighted. It depends on my mood. I'm usually delighted to, to be with other people. But as I said earlier, also, I love the real world in its very specific actions. I love sweeping the street in front of my son's museum. I love ironing napkins for anybody who wants them. So you can call me a day or night. So I, I just have this funny combination of very dreamy and I know how to put it into, into practice. Mm-hmm. And another thing from also from my personal experience and, and from the things I've read, usually, you know, artists have this kind of like, usually when they become the reason I would say to become a working artist is usually they have this stubbornness in them. They're not let the world almost non-negotiating of the world right. with their own talent, their own belief and values. But that kind of stubbornness definitely will come will turn into their favor when they come from a very privileged sense because then you don't have to bend yourself towards capitalism, towards other people's need and demands. You can actually create in your world. But from your upbringing, I understand 
you came from a not very well-off family. And so how did, I, I just wonder how did that come about that you, you know, kind of really believe in what you wanted to create and then you went ahead with it? Well, that was the, it was perhaps the right, the right time in history because uh, we, I mean, we were, we were perfectly fine. We were perfectly well off as a child growing up and we had a very nice life, but there was never any real sense of privilege by any means. This is also when I went to high school and college, uh, this is the late sixties and money was the last thing that anybody thought about. We were hippies. We were anti-establishment though. If you mentioned money, you were some kind of wretched person who wouldn't be invited into our circle at all. So the most important thing was just to do your work and to follow what you love. Following what you love would bring you to, we didn't even know enough to think about the future, but fortunately, as I keep now, the fortunately is going to come up every minute in this conversation, but <laughs> we were, we, and I'll say, how did that happen? We were good at making a living and especially my husband, and we were good at doing business, but doing business in the way that allowed us to do the work that we really love to do and to, to try to do good work and to try to be good people, which, I mean, you're not always successful, of course, but. And so that was the, and what, what was our personality again? What makes you persevere and not give up? I never felt I had a choice. There was no question that I had to do what I had to do because, I mean, even though, of course, I feel insecure and of course I look at my work and I go, oh, I don't know if it's good enough and I don't know whether I, can I do better next time? I, I'll certainly try or I'm lazy and I don't want to do anything. All of those things come into it, but the sense of, the energy returns and the, the perseverance returns and the stubbornness returns. I guess it's just in you. You know, mm. those are the things that you say, what's in me? Yeah. How old are your grandchildren? My granddaughter, Olive, just turned six. And Esme oh, is wow. turning three. Beautiful ages. Beautiful, beautiful ages. Beautiful ages. So much fun. And what I want to say is that I've been writing a an illustrated letter to them every week since Olive was born. So, and then when Esme was born, now it's to the two of them. And so there are hundreds and hundreds of illustrated letters, which they will hopefully one day treasure or make a book out of. And I say to them, I'm giving you a book deal for the future. But just some sense, <laughs> or maybe not, maybe they'll be worthless. But some sense for me, the continuity of sitting down and writing a letter, which I paint, you know, just something from the week, take to the post office, stand online there forever until you can finally mail the letter. That's uh, a great, that's one of the rituals when I talk about the daily, the real world and just being part of that and stopping time. If you want to stop time, go to the post office. I always say that. But, um, yeah. And then you mentioned your mother also most valued was time, right? So that was something that I can totally see you, you know, kind of hold on dearly to that. Yeah, that's it. And I, what, what she said was, what's, what's the most precious thing? And we knew the answer was time. That, because that's what she was said. There's nothing else, nothing. I mean, your health, of course, your health and time. Those are the two things. And, uh, um, and I collaborated with Nico Muley, the wonderful composer. I don't know if it's even something you can find online for a show that I did at the Cooper Hewitt, and it was with Abraham Lincoln's ticking pocket watch, oh. which was repaired for my show. And he composed a piece of music where I wrote the text and what is, you know, what is the most, what is the most precious thing? Time. So, um, so we, you know, you, you, you can't remember it every minute because then you'll go a little bit crazy, but try to remember it now and then. Yeah, yeah, I didn't actually encounter that show, but I know you had a crush, quote unquote, on Lincoln. <laughs> so I, I found that very fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I still do. I, it's not gone. Oh, it's still there? <laughs> For the listeners who, if they don't understand why and how you developed this kind of special connection with him, if you can actually briefly tell us. Well, I was asked to do a an article, and then I and then a, I did a book about Abraham Lincoln. A section for ch there was one book for children, uh, and another in my his book about history, American history, 
a, a section about Lincoln too. So in the more that I in, researched him and the more that I, I spent time with him, I think it's inevitable. Everybody, everybody who spends time with Lincoln falls madly in love with him. He was a brilliant man and a funny man too. He had a good sense of humor. So I liked all of his, he reminded me of my family. Mm. And and it's interesting also because out of all these like projects, you also quite identify yourself as a journalist, which is something I never thought you would because, you know, because I was a journalist before and I, there's some like um, very vigorous kind of act to it and a way of thinking to it, but your way is more playful and whimsical, which some somehow is quite different than what I see a journalist would be, but yet you kind of describe yourself or identify yourself as journalist in a way. So I found that interesting. Can you elaborate a little bit for me? I think it's part of being an outsider, which I think is a fantastic gift to have been given. When we moved here from Israel and my father said it was only temporary, so we never really, we never believed that we were Americans. I didn't become a citizen until I got married. And yet I wasn't really a part of Israel anymore because I was away for so long. So that, that sense of being an outsider and observing is a perfectly wonderful stance as any kind of person, as a journalist, as an artist. And I, I think that wandering around and telling you, reporting on what I've seen and what I, both with painting and with writing, is really my very wonderful uh, you know, happiness. And I think that for me, the digressions, the things that you're not expecting to have happen when you go, and I'm sent on assignment from different magazines for the New Yorker and for departures and other magazines that they want, they are probably looking for me to say what is off the subject and off point, but that is very delightful or very meaningful or poignant. So I'm just allowing things to happen and then I can make my story as it have as it comes and because i can paint it really adds another level i don't have you know not i don't have to use that many words which makes me happy because there are a lot of words to choose from yeah i i find that interesting because you talk about you know and at the start you thought you want to be a writer you want to write and then you kind of like fell out of love with your own writing because they they kind of you know force you to go into a very sad and upsetting place and so you thought you know what could bring me joy and your sister's practicing art actually sparked something in you and kind of prompted you towards illustrations. So do you still write? And is writing still kind of lead you to that more, you know, sad place? Because I feel like it's kind of interesting to our practice kind of prompted and then lead you to a different mm -hmm. emotions. Well, I definitely write. I've, I've, I've written most of, most of the books that I've, that I've done, I've written and I've painted and I'm writing a lot. Uh, for the new books that I'm doing, I'm writing a good amount. But again, for me, it's a balance. So it's very nice to be able to to be quiet and to show a painting and then to go back to writing. And I'm not as maudlin or as angst-ridden as I was as a teenager. Thank God. Otherwise, we would be, we would be not having a good conversation. So I'm still keenly aware of the absurdity of life, of the askewness of how we navigate uh, sorrow and, and um, disappointment. But I also have a little bit of perspective. So I'm not dwelling in the misery all the time, I'm happy to say. Mm. Yeah, and I think that uh, the perception has changed and is still gradually to to change more further is that I think for longest time we we kind of believe like art marinate this like misery or marinate art right. art is coming from misery coming from tragedy and joy wouldn't necessarily lead to any great art I think that has been a long time that was the notion that a lot of people almost hold on to right and I think that and you can't do any good work if you're not aware of, I love that marinating in misery. That's fantastic. That's going to be, I'm going to make a dish <laughs> called misery, mar marinated misery. I don't know what it is, but what's it going to be? Chicken, marinate, miserable chicken, marinated, miserable chicken. You should Something. definitely oh do a God, film so as funny. well. I was watching all the films you did with your, your uh, son, Alex. Oh. So much joy. I was laughing out loud. One of them. 
yeah. a day in your life one with the the rooster as your piano teacher. Oh, right, Mrs. Danziger. And that was a trained uh, chicken, by the way, a, a very, very good chicken who really was a good actor. Do you um, did you see the Alice B. Toklas one of, of me as Alice B. Toklas? Yeah, I did. Okay, good. I mean, that to me is my crap. But I wouldn't even say that's a film. That's more like re she reincarnated in your soul or something. Like she came yeah. alive. Like, yeah, tell us about that if you can segue to that. Because, yeah, I wanted to talk about that anyway. So since you mentioned it, let's go there. I wrote this little ditty about Gertrude Stein. I was her lover and she was mine. It was a sultry day in Paris, the day we met. A coup de foudre I'll never forget. She might have called me her babette, and yet, and yet, and yet, and yet. I was her pussy, and she was my lovey, my lovey, 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 dovey. To our salon. Yeah, well, I think that you know, you run across people in your life who you don't know, like Abraham Lincoln, that you, I fell in love with, and Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas, and I fell in love with them. And I think that they just they glow in the in the landscape. And for me, when something feels that wonderful, I have to I have to engage and I have to collaborate. So working on the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, which is a book that I adored. Uh, and not to believe one word, of course, or maybe every other word, you know, I mean, and, and we don't even care anymore about reliable or unreliable narrators. We have to throw that out the window. But at any rate, uh, at, in searching for truth, truth is something else. But uh, so when it was done and um, Alex and I were, t- my son Alex and I were talking and he, as you say, we collaborate on so many projects. Uh, I just thought, Oh, I have to, I'm, I'm Alice. I have to, I have to make a movie and you, you know, we're going to make a movie together of me as Alice B. Toklas. And so we did this. I think it's five minutes. And, um, I did, I, I felt like I was channeling her in some kind of crazy way. And of course I had to get the makeup, which took hours and to get a prosthetic nose that would be her nose. And I felt so comfortable and happy walking around the city with that makeup and that, you know, hat, that flowered hat, and thinking the eccentricity of being somebody else. You know, of course, we know why people like Halloween so much, because you can get dressed up and not be yourself. So I felt that um, I entered into their love affair in a very delightful way. And uh, Oh, I I really enjoyed it. And then almost feel like, you know, that, as I said, you, that she was incarnated through your, your work. And I wonder how did you let her cha- like let her let yourself be the channel to tell her story because I know a lot of actresses and art uh, actors will have some sort of things they would do prior to to the film the filming part is like they have to let that channel going through their body right and then and after that I have have to exit it and then come out of it and then so did you have to go through some of that kind of like spiritual in a way practice yeah, I wouldn't call it practice because I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And a lot of it was ad-libbed and just we did it on the spur of the moment. But I knew that I needed to enter into her. So in a sense, I was doing, I guess, what real actors do, which is trying to imagine her in my body, or my body is her, and how she would... T- I listened to tapes of her speaking so that I could start to get a glimmer of talking the way she talked. And uh, then reading reading her book, reading her cookbooks, which are hilarious. And if you ever try to make one of her dishes, forget it. It's just, but you read it because it's so funny and it's so irreverent. Uh, and so I, I I had a good sense of her tone, her acerbic, sharp tone, and their utter devotion to each other in 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 a long in a long life. Mm-hmm. Do you think that come with age or that just something you acquire early on when you were little? You know, the sense of like tap into your inner child pretty easily and not kind of preserve this inner child of yours, not letting her or him fade or go away or getting jaded by (laughs) the real life. And then you can just let her out or him out anytime you want it. I think that it's, again, I don't know if it's a choice that you make to 
I'm, for better or for worse, very connected to how I was when I was five and how I was when I was 10. And that sense of unlimited possibility, that sense of stupendous self-confidence as a child and not feeling that the world was a difficult place, feeling that the world was a wonderful place. So that clearly, whatever the forces were that enabled me to feel that way then, endured. And I don't think I've changed that much. I think I'm pretty pretty consistent. I think you'll, you'll see the seven-year-old in me pretty well. And the seven-year-old liked to make a chart of all of her daily activities. So make the bed, check. Uh, you know, get dressed, check. And I, that to me was a fantastically comforting thing that, that I was controlling my, my life. And I think that's how we live with, and of course the legacy of a really good sense of humor in the family, that that was, if you didn't have a sense of humor, I think you would be shown the door and, and mm -hmm. told to find another family. So Maybe that sounds a little mean, but, but not really. But <laughs> not so really. Um, sorry, not sorry. All of, not really. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Sorry, not sorry at all. Not sorry at all. Uh, and the ability to laugh and to laugh at yourself and to laugh at at, at um, conditions of of your life that seem unbearable. Um, mm. Yeah. And I have another question: is about kind of the way of searching for authenticity because i mean the word authenticity has been thrown around everywhere it's been hashtagged it's been branded it's been commercialized um and also you talk a lot about this importance and this like interesting aspect of being performative being you know playful so my question is is this calling for action, for searching for authenticity, trying to be authentic, is it even feasible? Um, yeah. You know what I mean? Right. I know what you're asking. And I think that, that the only thing that we know is that nothing stays the same through the day and through the year and through our lives. And that it's a fantastically complicated mix of hopeful and hopeless, smart and stupid, kind and mean and that the authenticity is just being alive it's you you there's never a state that you place that you get to and you go aha i'm here okay now it's just smooth sailing there's no such thing as that and that if you can accept that which i can't all the i can't every minute by any means and i'm sad and worried certainly as much as anybody else but then you get, I think the age gives you perspective that things will change. If things look really grim, the weather will change, the day will come, the day will change, and it won't be this one, one condition. So we, we, you know, I wish there was a wonderful place where we got to and we're happy all the time and everything is, seems reasonable and we have pride in ourselves. It's not going to happen. So uh, learn to live with it. <laughs> One learns to live with it in all of its uh, imperfections. And that's the authenticity. The authenticity is what mm -hmm. happens. So my last question is, what is your biggest fear? Do you have any fear right now? Oh, my God. I have so much fear in me, especially now. I'm terribly fearful of this war that's going on around us that's embroiling the world in a way that is makes me despondent it's not just oh too bad it's this is this is a tragedy of epic proportions because it feels like it's going to envelop the world and i think that we're we're looking at a dictator of a madman and a dictator in putin so it's it's like looking at history and going wait are we are we repeating World War II, where are we going? And so that terrifies me. And in the bigger picture, which forces me to walk even more. So now probably I'll just walk all day, every day, until, until things resolve themselves. Uh, and 
of course, on a, on a daily basis, oh yeah, I worry about I worry about not doing good work. I worry about dying and leaving my children to their own devices, which you would think I would be feel they were okay. And yet I think, no, they're going to need me around for at least another 100 or 200 years. <laughs> so all of the, irration, the irrational and the rational converge. And I, I just, but I, I think that all of those things are natural and try to, try to find a balance. And that's, that's maybe not, the word job isn't really wonderful, it doesn't sound so great, but maybe the, the advice I would give is that that's the balance that I, I would, the advice I would give myself is that, you know, look for the balance of the world, because as we say, it's not just going to be one thing, mm. it will be everything. Um, all right, um, this has been such a pleasure. Do you have anything you would like to share that I didn't actually touch upon, that you Maybe share some more wisdom. I don't know if I have any more wisdom to share. Sasha, uh, thank you so much. You're a wonderful interviewer. Is this what you do full time? Oh, sorry. I, I didn't, I think you got cut off for a second. Oh, no. Um, I'm saying, is you're a wonderful interviewer. Is this what you do full time? Oh, thank you. I wonder why that got cut off. <laughs> I would love to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, right, I'll well, say it uh, again. Right, exactly. Again, again. Actually, you didn't get caught up. I just wanted to hear it again. Um, Thank you so much for tuning in today. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation. I really had lots and lots of fun. Myra is such a humble and talented artist and human being. Um, it's such a pleasure to be speaking with her. And we actually at the end talk about next time when I'm in New York, I would love to pay her a visit. Maybe we can go to the park for a walk and to look at the trees and dogs together. <laughs> All right. Um, if you can, you know, leave us review or comment on Spotify or Apple podcast, uh, that would be amazing. And if you want to sign up on our Substack letter, uh, I will link the link in the show note. And also, if you want to find out more of Myra's work, all the links will be in the show note as well. So, all right, I will see you next time. Bye.